You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And now chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of the outcome? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, church, let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. If you still have a Bible in hand, you're going to turn back a few pages to the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Friends, the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves daughter or son more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming to visit. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the fifth Sunday in the season of Eastertide. And in this season, we are pursuing, as a church family, a sermon series on the New Testament book of First Peter. And we're calling this Living the Resurrection in the Here and Now. We're asking the question, how does the resurrection of Jesus from the dead transform the way that we live life today? Uh, if you're a Christian, then you might uh, suspect or believe that the resurrection of Christ has eternal meaning for you, and it does. That's something we believe and, and hold true. Uh, but there's also transformation here, now, life today, and that's what we're thinking about and talking about. And thus far, we've examined resurrection hope, resurrection holiness, resurrection authority, and last week, resurrection relationships. Today, we're examining resurrection suffering, two words that just don't seem to belong together, resurrection suffering. But as we begin, let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Buddhism teaches that nearly all human pain can be explained by what is called the wheel of suffering. The wheel of suffering. And you might imagine something like a like a hamster wheel or a dog wheel. Uh, imagine that every, kind of, every human being is on this kind of wheel and, and desire is out in front of you. These are the things in life you're chasing, the things that you want. These are your appetites, uh, the good life out in front of you. And then behind you is things you're afraid of, things you're trying to avoid, things you want to get away from, death being the main thing. So life's out there in front of you, death's back there behind you, and it keeps you running on the wheel. And it causes uh, suffering in all kinds of ways. It causes suffering in uh, the exhaustion and the anxiety it creates as you chase things you'll never have and as you run away from things that are definitely going to get you. And then it also creates suffering when you finally get the thing you're chasing. Again, this is the teaching of Buddhism. Getting what you want doesn't satisfy your appetite. It just creates more appetite. It's like drinking salt water. It just kind of makes you thirstier. Achieving the things you want in life is like cutting off the head of a hydra. More heads just grow back in its place. And so Buddhism teaches the wheel of suffering as a means of explaining so much of the pain that we all experience in life. And it's worth probably noting, just we could pause here for a minute and say, there's a lot of wisdom there, isn't it? 
You know, whenever you encounter kind of what we might say is groundwater truth in other faiths and other traditions, it's worth kind of noting and affirming like, oh, that element is, is actually really helpful or that element is really true. So when we, we, we examine this, the wheel of suffering in Buddhism, we kind of go, oh boy, that, that really does make sense of so much of my experience in life. There are things that I'm chasing and there are things that I'm running from and it really does stress me out. It really does wear me out. And so many of the problems and pain and suffering that I experience in life really are things that I've kind of brought on myself, either from chasing stuff that I shouldn't have or running from stuff that I shouldn't be afraid of. But here's the thing. How do you get off the wheel? If, if, there, if, if there is a wheel of suffering and if you're running on it right now, if you're on the treadmill, how do you get off? Or, or here's a different question. What if, you're chasing is a, what if the thing you're chasing is a good thing and not a bad thing? I mean, I think one of the problems we face whenever it comes time to talk about suffering is there's lots of different kinds of suffering out there. There are things that we bring on ourselves and there's lessons we can learn from that. But then there's things we don't bring on ourselves. Then there's unjust suffering. Then there's things that people don't deserve, but the bad stuff happens anyway. How do you make sense of that? What dignity, what hope, what redemption might there be for unjust, undeserved suffering? And I think trying to answer that question is one of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith. And I think inadequate answers to those questions are reasons why people are not interested in the Christian faith. Lousy answers to the problem of suffering. Reasons not to be a Christian. Or maybe it's not just the bad answers. Maybe it's actually the followers of Jesus themselves, the Christians themselves who are trying to avoid suffering and therefore have a kind of duplicitous nature in their lives that says to the rest of the world, we believe in a God that suffers on the cross, but I myself, I don't want anything to do with that, right? Uh, some of you might have seen the TV show Inside Man. I can't actually recommend it, so please don't take this as a recommendation. It's pretty violent, pretty disturbing. Uh, so age appropriate here. But... Um, there's a character in this TV show that says something that was so profound that when I heard it, I had to like hit pause and go write it down. Character that says, quote, verbatim, people say they're Christians, but you know what? You never see them getting nailed to anything. We don't want to, we don't want to suffer. We want to avoid pain. And Christians tend to run, a, run away from pain just as much as anybody else. Now, one scholar has said, pain is the great teacher and beneath its breath, souls develop. And I don't want that to be true. I would imagine you probably don't want that to be true either, but it is if you think about it. If you ask someone to name the most formative moments or experiences in their life, they may mention, may, a few happy, pleasant memories, but more often than not, you know what they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about the pain. They're going to talk about the hard things they've gone through and how those things formed them and shaped them and made them to be the person that they are right now. Pain is a teacher. And listen, the way that you and I respond to pain and suffering will end up being one of the most important factors in determining who we become. Like, if you want to cast your imagination into the future and think about who are you becoming, what kind of human are you growing up into, then one of the main factors that will determine that answer is how do you respond to the pain and suffering that is absolutely going to come your way? How are you going to respond to it? You know, one of the most important stories in the Christian faith to reframe how you and I engage with pain and suffering is ironically one of the least talked about aspects of the Bible, at least in Protestant churches like, like this one. It is the theology of Jesus descending into hell, into Hades, 
to proclaim the gospel to the dead and to lead into freedom the saints who had died before Jesus was crucified and before he was raised from the dead. This is what the church has historically called the harrowing of hell. Harrow, meaning this kind of old English uh, verb, meaning like to dig up, like you could harrow a field if you plow up a field. It's to disturb it, to break it up, to chop it up. Jesus harrowing, chopping up, breaking up hell. Now, traditionally, this bit of doctrine and theology is remembered and preached about on Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. If you look at the art on the front of the liturgy you received when you walked in, there's uh, an icon there by a Ukrainian artist, Katerina Shadrina. And this is actually, this, this harrowing of hell is one aspect of Christian theology that is most frequently depicted in Christian art. There's some good grippy visuals here. Now, there are a number of places in Scripture that describe this. So this is one of those aspects of Christian theology that is not just taken from one verse in the Bible. It's taken from a thread that runs all throughout Scriptures from beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. In Matthew chapter 27, um, we read after the death of Jesus, just as the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook, rocks were split apart, and tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. That's one of those moments in Scripture where whenever I read it, I think, I want more. Like, tell me more. What else happened? And then what? Did they talk to people? I want to know. I don't have enough information here. Acts chapter 2, uh, the author, the apostle Luke, um, is describing this. He says, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he neither was abandoned to Hades, nor did his body experience decay. Later in the very book that we're reading, in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 4, we'll get to this later in the series, in chapter 4, verse 6, Peter writes, Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. The Apostle Paul also talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he writes, Now, what is the meaning of Jesus ascending, except that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? In other words, the point I'm trying to make is that this is a thread that is woven all throughout Scripture, the reality that in between the cross and the resurrection, Jesus did something. He went to work, and he went to work in hell. Now, if you've ever said the Apostles' Creed before, you've actually said these words even if you've never paid attention to them before. In the Apostles' Creed, recited by all Christians throughout history around the world, there is that line, he descended to the dead, or in the old translation, he descended into hell. In Latin, that phrase is descended ad inferos, Jesus descends to hell. Now, I'm framing all of this out for you because the particular text we're going to look at this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. You may have noticed that the passage that Lane read for us from the book of 1 Peter was a little bit long. Yes? Some of you were like, yes, I tuned out and then tuned back in and then tuned out multiple times all throughout the read, right? It's a long reading. We're not used to hearing long readings in church. Here's what I did. Um, rather than attempting to preach to you a sermon that attempts to address everything from those texts, what I did is I looked through those texts and, and picked out the main theme, which is 
suffering in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And then I looked for the core of the passage. What is the main place of, what is like the main core of hope offered to us here? And it was these verses, chapter three, verses 18 through 22. And I also thought, well, this is probably the hardest part of the passage as well. So why not go for the hard stuff, yeah? Let me reread this text for you again, and then we're gonna, we're gonna kind of dig into it a little bit, okay? First Peter chapter three, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they did formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as I did some study this week, uh, because Believe me, I did some study. This is a hard text and I needed some help. So I went looking for all the commentaries and resources I could get my hands on to try to understand what's going on here. And I encountered this phrase from Martin Luther, the great reformer from 500 years ago. And he writes about this text, and this is so funny. Quote, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't really know for certainty what Peter means. <laughs> There's like some wonderful comfort in when you hit a part of the Bible and you go, I don't understand this. And then you read through history and you go, I'm not the only one who doesn't understand this. There's something wonderful here. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to get into the mystery of this text and we won't fully understand it. But there is something between fully understanding something and ignoring it. We're not going to fully understand, but we're not going to ignore either. We're going to understand as much as we can, and then we'll apply as much as we can. Um, if some of you might have a legal background, you might be familiar with the idea that when you're trying a class action lawsuit, meaning a lawsuit with kind of multiple um, uh, different kind of aspects or, or kind of trials to it, the thing you want to do if you're a good lawyer, if you're a brave lawyer, is you want to go find the hardest case and try that one first. Because if you can win the hardest case, the rest of them are going to fall like dominoes. This kind of broader text is about suffering. It's a hard class action lawsuit. These verses here are the hardest case. So let's try it first. If, this, if there's goodness here for us in this text, then there's goodness everywhere. Okay, now as we get into this, there's three different kinds of people in the room, okay? And here they are. Person number one, you grew up in either the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox Church, and you've heard sermons on this before. This is familiar to you, you're, you're used to it, and, uh, and none of this so far has been surprising or disturbing to you. You're doing fine. Person number two, you're not a Christian, or maybe you're a brand new Christian, and you kind of know full well, Christians are weird. They talk about weird things, they believe weird things. This doesn't seem any stranger to you than the creation story in Genesis or the Exodus story in the parting of the Red Sea when Israel leaves Egypt or Jesus dying and rising from the dead. And you know what? You're right. It's not any weirder. It's just as weird. Equal weirdness, right? Person number three, you're in trouble. You grew up in church, but you've never heard this before. This is going to sound really strange. 
and it's probably going to be a little difficult for you. This sermon may end up being like a bit of theology you've never tried before. And trying new foods is risky. What if it doesn't taste good? Um, let me kind of set this up. This, this theology, this doctrine of the church is something like a finely aged wine. The taste is complex and there are different notes that strike your palate at different moments. It begins smooth. Then it gets bitter and has these dry, spicy notes in the middle, but it has a sweet finish. Okay? That's how the sermon's going to go. Now, the big question is, why does it matter that Jesus descended into hell? Like, why does it matter? It might be something that people believe, but we're talking about living the resurrection in the here and now. So how does this transform our life today, in the month of May in 2023? Why does it matter? Listen, there is no such thing as impractical Christian theology. All theology must be lived so why does it matter for the here and now that Christ descended to the dead? Well, Christ's descent into hell is both a comfort and a commission for suffering. There's a comfort to be received. There's a commission that sends. And both of these require some action from us. Jesus' descent into hell can and will transform the way you live through the hardest, most painful, most unfair suffering of your life. And as we said earlier, the way that you respond and deal with suffering is one of the most important factors in you becoming the person that you end up being. So there's a lot here for us. Let's begin with a comfort. There's comfort in suffering for us. The first is, this is a little counterintuitive, the comfort of heroism. You're longing for a true hero. You want a hero. And I'm not just talking about the kind of like, I need a hero that Bonnie Tyler sings about in her song in the 1980s, I Need a Hero. Some of you know that song, right? Where have all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight against the odds, right? Like, guys, it's an awesome song. Go YouTube it later, you'll love it. No, but there's this deep, there's this deep human need for a hero, for someone to look to as the one who, who like conquers and rises against all odds. I mean, all of, almost all of our best stories and movies and books are about heroes. From Beowulf to Harry Potter to the Marvel Cinematic Universe to Born Identity to James Bond. Like, pick a theme. Heroes. There is a deep, innate human longing for a hero. It transcends time and culture all people in all times and all places long for a hero. And so even as we in our current cultural moment tear down statues and cancel historical figures and cancel celebrities, what do we end up doing in that vacuum? We just put new people up. We replace them with new heroes because you and I need a hero. And this here, this, uh, this story of Jesus descending into hell after dying on the cross. This is the heroic moment of Jesus. Now, previously in Jesus's life, people kept waiting and hoping for heroic moments. The followers of Jesus wanted Christ to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse and go to town on the Roman Empire and kick them out, and he didn't do it. Instead, he rides in on a donkey and dies. Big disappointment. But here, in an unseen way, Jesus actually fulfills that heroic hope where Jesus storms the gates of hell, knocks down the wall, and liberates the captives. This is the moment. He just does it in a surprising way. He does it through death. So there's not just a, a comfort in heroism here. There's also a comfort in unity, and here it is. This goes beyond misery loves company. Jesus knows your particular pain. 
Your suffering shares in the suffering of Jesus. And even more, Jesus' suffering shares in yours. There's a togetherness here. There's a unity here. And anyone who has truly suffered knows the pain of loneliness. Because suffering and pain does two things to you. One, there's the thing itself. The hard thing that you have to go through. The loss of job. The sickness that you contract. The person who breaks up with you. Like, there's, there's the hard thing that happens to you and there's the suffering and pain that comes with it. That's part one. And then part two, there's what that suffering does to all of your relationships, which is it estranges you from other people. Now, people don't get you. They don't understand you. They can't relate. They can't empathize with what you're going through. There's the loneliness of suffering. There's the pain itself, and then there's the loneliness that the suffering actually creates. And here, that loneliness and that pain is bridged by the descent of Christ into hell. Suffering estranges us from other people, and yet it can draw us closer to Jesus. How? Why? Because Jesus goes all the way. There is no depth of pain to which he has not already gone. There is no deep, dark, horrible place of despair that Jesus hasn't already gone to. He doesn't just die. He goes all the way. He goes to the hell that you fear. He goes to the hell that you feel like you're being sucked into in the suffering that you're walking through right now. He's already there. And he's already there in the comfort of his presence. There's the comfort of heroism. There's the comfort of unity. And there's also the comfort of presence. Psalm 139 verse 8, the psalmist says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is Hebrew for hell, you are there. This is what King David is getting after in Psalm 23, that psalm that so many people know, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably have heard of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death. You are with me. All of us have times and places where it feels like God has abandoned us. And the news here is that hell is not an unknown place. Jesus has already gone there. Hell is not a place of complete hopelessness. Christ has evangelized hell. Hell is not Satan's domain. Christ has invaded hell and taken death captive. Hell is not a final destination. The gates of hell have been shattered and the captives are liberated. We need not fear death. Christ, our captain, has gone before us, leading our way into heaven. And so there's the comfort of heroism. There's the comfort of unity. There's the comfort of presence. And as we begin to drink this well-aged wine of this doctrine of Christ harrowing hell, it begins smooth. But then there's a change on your palate and there start to be these notes of bitterness and dry spiciness. And here it is. There's not just a comfort, there's also a commission. The commission is to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. Follow him where? To hell. You are commissioned to descend into suffering and go into the depths of hellish existence. To be clear, in this life, not in the life to come. The human race has become quite adept in creating a kind of hell on earth. Whenever you and I read through scripture and we read these metaphorical images of what this Sheol, this hell, this place of of death and darkness is like, fire and torment, you know what they actually do? For people that live today, they start to pale in comparison to some of the atrocities that we humans have already created. When you read the images of hell in scripture, they pale in comparison to the Holocaust or to Hiroshima or genocide right? Or to mall shootings in Texas, which happened yesterday, right? Humans are pretty good at creating hell on earth. 
Now, what's more, and this is going to get worse before it gets better, there's also the crushing despair of our secular age, which creates a kind of hell on earth that we have become so used to that sometimes we forget that it's actually there. In other words, we're so used to despair, we kind of think of it as normal. If you open up to the inside cover of your liturgy, you'll see seven questions listed. These are kind of seven fundamental human questions that we talk about here at Redeemer. Questions that every human being is asking in all places and all times. Whether you're a Christian or not, these are questions that everybody is already trying to answer. And they're questions like, what story am I in? Who am I? With whom do I belong? How do I change? Where do I make my life? What's my purpose? How do I love? And the answers to these questions offered to us in our secular age are so depressingly poor. What story am I in? No great story at all. It's just your story. There's no bigger story. No meta narrative. Who am I? Your call, whatever you decide to be. With whom do I belong? Only the people you choose and who are nice enough to choose you back. Where do I change? Or how, how do I change? Biohacks? I don't know. Try harder. Where do I make my life? Doesn't matter. All places are the same. Walmart here is the same as Walmart there. Where's my purpose? Whatever you imagine your purpose to be, it just exists in your head anyway. It's not real. How do I love? Just feel loving. The poverty of our answers to these deep human needs leave us with no reason to live or die. And so the crushing despair of our secular age, which we are all required to navigate, creates a kind of living hell that we become so used to we don't even really know where we are. Now, Listen, uh, there's actually something hopeful here, and it's this. Walking through a sermon series on the book of 1 Peter um, is not a new idea. The church has actually been preaching through 1 Peter after Easter uh, for quite a long time. Some of you thought I was very creative, like, oh, that's really neat, like a sermon, on, a sermon series on 1 Peter after Easter, like how clever. Not clever, not creative. In the 300s, Gregory of Nazianzus, this great bishop of the church, was preaching his way through 1 Peter. This is the 300s. And he's preaching his way through 1 Peter after, the season, after Easter, during the season of Eastertide. And he gets to this particular text. And he's talking about what it means for us that Christ descended into hell. And here's what he says. If Jesus descended into hell, comma, descend with him. Learn to know the mysteries of Christ there also. There is a commission here, and the commission is to go with Jesus into the deepest and darkest and most painful places of suffering that exist in this world. Christians do not avoid the pain, the anguish, the anxiety, the despair of our age. We move towards all of them. We dive into the freezing oceans of loneliness. We dive into the boiling cauldron of anger. We dive into the fog of confusion. We dive into the pain and the suffering of this world in the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers of our families. We move towards the pain and we descend with Christ. That is the, that is the missional commission of the church, to do a with Jesus into the depths. And at this point, some of us are thinking two different questions. One set of questions would be, okay, how? How do I do that? And that's a very well-intentioned question. Um, others of you are asking perhaps a more emotionally honest question like, why? <laughs> why do I, do I have to do that? I'd like Jesus to suffer for me. I'm okay with that. I don't really want to suffer with Jesus. Or I'd rather be raised with Christ. Do I really have to descend with Christ? This, 
the, 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 the well-aged wine of this doctrine of Christ harrowing hell starts out smooth. In the middle, it gets bitter and dry and spicy, but then it has a sweet finish. And here is the sweetness. And it's the answer to the question, how and why? <laughs> Baptism. Nobody sees that coming, but the text does. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What happens in baptism, whether the water is poured over your head or whether you are submerged into the water, what's happening in the moment? Really, is it just a symbol or is there something actually happening? What's happening according to the story of the Bible is that you are being united, wedded to Christ in baptism so that you both descend with him and rise with him. In this, Christ's heroic victory becomes your victory. Your need to be caught up in an epic story is met. You are part of an epic story. Your need for heroism is bound up in the heroism of Jesus. His victory actually becomes your victory. I uh, didn't initially plan on writing this or sharing this as a part of the sermon, but it's just something I saw happen yesterday. And I thought, oh, there it is. That's exactly it. The Murata family was at Bryan Park for Soccer Saturday because that's kind of where we spend like nine hours on Saturdays these days. And uh, my son Wills had a soccer game. We were all there to watch him on the sidelines. And at one point, there's a player on his team who's like a little bit older and maybe a little bit more advanced uh, who had scored a number of goals. I think he had a hat trick. And at this one particular point in the game, this other player on Wills' team scores a goal. The crowd's all cheering. And Wills runs over towards the sideline. He finds me, kind of looks at me, gives me the thumbs up, and then kind of does this like celebration dance where he's doing this and he's kind of starting to move his shoulders and his hips and everybody on the sideline is laughing and I'm cheering for him. And I'm going, yeah, buddy, that's great. And inside I'm thinking, you know, it wasn't you that scored, right? <laughs> but what I loved about that moment was that he's so on the team that it didn't matter <laughs> that he wasn't the one that scored. He's just celebrating the victory. You're not the one that scores. You don't storm the gates of hell. You don't knock down the walls and set the captives free. But your team does. Your captain does. And his victory becomes your victory. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The New Testament always speaks of Christ as not the one who taught or demonstrated the possibility of a glorious afterlife, but who first created the possibility of a glorious afterlife. Christ is the pioneer, the first fruits, the man who forced the door. And so you're not only descending with Christ, you're also ascending with him. If you are in Christ, if you are baptized into unity with Jesus, this is not aspirational. It's descriptive. It's already true in you. And this means that the, the real commission is not to get out there and try to have a bad life. <laughs> Thank goodness. The real commission here is simply to practice your own baptism. To not only be someone who is baptized, but to be someone who on an ongoing basis, day in, week out, year out, is practicing their own baptism. And in practicing your own baptism, you are practicing that descent with Jesus and also practicing the hope of resurrection. You experience the comfort and commission by practicing your own baptism, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as the text says, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection, meaning raised to new life in Jesus in order to obey with a good conscience. Baptism now saves you. 
Baptism rescues you. And this is, this is like something that so many of us trip over. We hear these words, and there's something in our kind of American Western minds that goes, well, it doesn't mean that literally, right? <laughs> it's probably a metaphor for something else. It probably means the opposite. It probably means you're saved by faith, not baptism. That's probably what Peter means when he says baptism saves you, right? He probably just is, is he's probably bad with words. He means the opposite of what he wrote. Stop it. What does the text say? <laughs> baptism now saves you. This is one of those sentences that is kind of like a Richmond sidewalk. You ever try to go jogging in Richmond? <laughs> Do you ever make the mistake of running on the sidewalks? <laughs> I still have scars on my knees and elbows from making that mistake of running on sidewalks. Uh, a good friend of mine who's here in the church, David Van Esselstyn, uh, he and I actually had a sidewalk incident a number of years ago where we were walking to lunch from this location and he hit one of those cracks or bumps in the sidewalk and went down and ended up like dislocating his shoulder. Like that, this is kind of what happens to us when we hit this verse. We stumble over it. That can't be right. Listen. Baptism and faith go together in a way that cannot be divorced. You should not separate baptism from faith any more than you should separate a husband from a wife. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. <laughs> getting baptized in the water is kind of like getting on the ark. It's getting on the boat that saves you from the flood. And you don't just do that in your heart, you do that with your body. <laughs> That's how boats work, right? How silly would it be to get time travel all the way back to the days of Noah when the flood is imminent and to have people saying, I'm on the ark in my heart. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> it's not a thing. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> you have to get on with your body. I'm baptized in my heart. No, you're not. <laughs> it happens with water to your body because your body's the thing that's going to die and your body's the thing that's going to descend. And your body is the very thing that Christ died in his own body so that he can raise you up to new life in your body. So how do you practice this? You practice it with your body. Christ descends to hell to raise us up to new life. So in this life, we're willing to descend into the hellish conditions in order to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sacrament of baptism symbolizes this, and I'm going to make up a word here, sacramentalizes it, this union with Christ. Therefore, living out your baptism necessitates descending into the hellishness of our world for the good of others and for the glory of God. And y'all, the story just gets better and better because the harrowing of hell that we now look back to in the past is also something that we anticipate in the future. Well, Christ will come to harrow the earth, meaning Christ will come in final judgment to break up and disturb this world to lead captives into freedom. And baptism unites us with Jesus in this work, past, present, and future. So let's conclude here. How do you get off the wheel? How do you get off the wheel of suffering? Well, Jesus gets onto the wheel of suffering and he starts running in the other direction. We're all running away from death. We're all running towards whatever we think of as the good life. And Jesus gets on the wheel and he runs the other way. And he runs right into the jaws of death and past the jaws of death all the way down into hell. And in doing so, he stops the spinning wheel. And in our baptism and our union with Jesus, we go with him. We turn and we start running the way that Jesus runs. We head into the fray, into all the things that scare us. And we descend with him, knowing that we will rise with him. 
And so the wheel of suffering just gets left on the trash heap of history. Let's end with this. John Chrysostom, this great uh, teacher and father of the church all the way back in church history, has this famous Easter sermon where he describes what this means for us. He writes this, hell took a body, Jesus, and lo, it found God. Hell took earth and behold that it countered heaven. Hell took what it saw and was overcome by what it could not see. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen. You, hell, are annihilated. Christ is risen. The demons have fallen. Christ is risen. The angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to not only descend from heaven to earth, but also to descend from earth all the way into the depths of hell so that there might be no place where we could go to be apart from you and that you might liberate all captives, set all prisoners free. Lord, thank you for your death. Thank you for your descent. May we have the courage to be united with you in baptism and to practice our baptism by descending with you into the darkest and deepest and most terrifying places of this world so that we might follow you and bear our cross and one day rise with you into newness of life. This we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.